Hamas's invasion of Israel and the multiple atrocities Hamas terrorists committed once they were on Israeli soil led to a war that is now entering its fifth month. Prior to October 7th, Israelis regarded Hamas as a tactical threat, an enemy with terrible intentions, but limited capabilities. That turns out to have been an underestimation. Hamas, like Hezbollah in Lebanon, can be seen as an instrument, a cat's paw, a foreign legion of the neo-imperialist regime in Tehran, which has for years threatened Israelis with genocide. As we record this podcast on Wednesday, February 14th, Israeli forces are battling a Hamas brigade in the southern Gazan city of Khan Yunus, and they've begun pinpoint raids in Rafah, where four Hamas battalions reportedly remain. Last Sunday, Israeli commandos rescued two hostages in Rafah. With us to discuss the battles in Gaza, the broader war, and the choices Israelis face over the days and weeks and, and months ahead is retired General Amir Eshel, who served as the Director General of the Israeli Ministry of Defense and before that as Commander-in-Chief of the Israeli Air Force. In 2017, he received the Legion of Merit Award from the U.S. Department of Defense for his long-standing partnership with the U.S. Air Force. He currently serves as a senior fellow at FDD. Also with us is retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. Mark served for 32 years in the U.S. Navy as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer. His flag officer assignments included director of operations at U.S. Pacific Command. Mark also served as policy director for the Senate Armed Services Committee, coordinating policy efforts on national security strategy, capabilities and requirements, and cyber policy. He now serves as senior director of FTD's Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation, where he leads FTD's efforts to advance U.S. security and prosperity through technology innovation while countering cyber threats. Mark also directs CSC 2.0, an initiative that works to implement the recommendations of the congressionally mandated Cyberspace Solarium Commission, where he served as executive director. And he's joining us from Africa, from Rwanda, and more on that in a future podcast. We're pleased you're joining us too for this conversation here on Foreign Policy. Good to see you, Amir. Good to see you, Mark. Um, I, look, I want to be mostly forward-looking in this conversation, but let's take a minute to draw some lessons for the U.S. from what Israel is experiencing. Let me see if you agree with me that these are, these are valid lessons. One, be careful not to underestimate your enemies. Two, don't be complacent about your own capabilities. Three, challenge your narratives, your perception of reality, your concepcia, uh, to use what I believe is the, is the Hebrew word. Amir, are, are, are those mistakes you would agree Israel has made? I agree with you. Um, I would say that this is, we're talking about humans, personalities, influence, making mistakes, perceptions, whatever. I think in, in, in general terms, everybody is exposed to those kind of failures, and I would say that I agree with all of your statements here because it's, it doesn't matter if you're a superpower or a small state like Israel. All of us are exposed for potential, I would say, tragic mistakes. And we did many in October 7th. Mark, what about, 
what about you? What do you what do you draw from this? Two thoughts. One, and I agree with what Amir said. Um, and it's good to be with both of you. Um, it's been a while since General Eshel and I talked face to face back in Tel Aviv, probably eight years ago. Um, you know, the first the first thing I think, you know, a very pedestrian one, is it reminds us about stockpiling. And the U.S. has now had two painful iterations of this lesson. One in February of 2022, where you know we looked back into our just something simple like 155 millimeter. And found out we were carrying about, you know, a 10-day float, you know, for U.S. forces, probably about a 40-day float for Ukrainian forces. And we've been playing catch-up. And we had allowed our defense industrial base to uh, to, to gracefully degrade down to 20%, 25% production rates in every missile, not just 155, but not just Javelin, but every missile that we need for China, we need for Russia. It was just a conscious decision to not be ready that everyone apparently agreed to without ever saying it. That's number one. Number two is, you know, that, you know, we have to remind ourselves sometimes, you know, you and I go to Israel a lot and, you know, every meeting starts with a, like a 30 minute discussion of the grievances, right. You know, of all the challenges that Israel has and we become numb to it. And what I think what we missed was that one of our allies was, you know, our, you know, our, our deepest allies actually had more on the plate than was reasonable to handle. I mean, this is a country that spent between five and a half and seven and a half percent of their GDP on defense for the last two decades, um, way more than we do. You know, we've been gracefully degrading down from four percent to three point five percent to three point two percent. That's hard for democracy. What we're doing, really hard for Israel, and I think over time. With so many threats and needing to pay for missile defense, needing to pay for naval forces to protect the Mediterranean, needing submarine forces for things, needing air forces for many missions, you know, especially to penetrate harder Israelis. We started to lose sight of the fact that our our good friend was probably, you know, was having to take risks somewhere. And I think we found out on October 7th that that risk was probably in, you know, Army battalions and readiness and things like that. Not, not, there's other things that contribute to this, but we're, we're their closest friend and partner, and we should be able to see these things and talk about it with them. And I don't think we did a very good job. If you go back, you're not going to find transcriptions and minutes of meetings where we said this to the Israelis and had this kind of discussion with them. And probably, you know, we missed a, an important opportunity there to prevent something like this. Although we will never take blame for this publicly. The United States. We will continue to say this was an Israeli intelligence and military failure, and and not kind of recognize we were part of the. You know, we could have been part of the solution. Something else occurs to me that, that I'd like to get your thoughts on. People talk a lot these days about exit strategies, and you know the idea is you use military force not to defeat your enemies or even seriously degrade their capabilities, but to push them back or teach them a lesson. In 2007, um, in 2005, actually, Israel had an exit strategy for Gaza. It was to exit Gaza. <laughs> uh, every soldier, every farmer, every synagogue, every cemetery, everything. The idea, hey, no occupation, leave the territory, leave the people there alone, just prevent weapons from getting in best you can, police your border, trust the Egyptians to police their border. It worked. Of course, until it didn't. Uh, you're right, Cliff. 
staying in Gaza was a situation that uh, we were facing a lot of threats because sitting 10,000 people, Israelis, in settlements within the center of Gaza, not the city, the Gaza Strip, was a major challenge. There were a lot of terrorist activities, attacks, suicide bombers, etc. I think Ariel Sharon made the right decision. And he was the prime minister at the time who made that decision. Yes. And he said, we are not going to continue with this situation of 10,000 people among 2 million people. It's almost impossible to defend. They said, all right, we'll go back and we'll defend our borders. And of course, we need to do a lot of things. Some mistakes were done, but it was an, a smart move. It was a heartbreaking one, but it was a smart move security-wise. Heartbreaking because the, those in Gaza who were liber- they did not want to leave. They 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 had their homes, they had their lives, they had hot, hot, they were doing farming. There were hot houses for flowers and veg. There were a lot of they didn't want, and the army had to pull them out. I would also argue that it was in a way a, a noble experiment because you were saying, look, do the here we're going to leave you. We're not going to occupy you. One of Jewish neighbors, except across the fence, turn Gaza into the Singapore, the do of the on the Mediterranean, the Dubai. Do what you can. And if things work out well, well, then we'll figure out a way to move towards the West Bank and doing something similar and statehood. We can figure out a way to make the two territories contiguous. You know what the what the way would have been? How about a tunnel? I think it's 58 miles from Gaza to the West Bank. How long are the tunnels? I think over 350 miles. So you could have had a way to have cars go through from Gaza City all the way to Ramallah if you wanted to do it. But they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going. Hamas is going to. What Hamas is going to do is prepare for war with Israel by building this elaborate, extensive network. And by the way, we don't have to worry about social services and welfare because the international community will take care of that. And the UN through UNRWA, UN Relief and Works Agency, they'll provide it. We Hamas, we can concentrate on keeping our main thing the main thing. And our main thing is how do we kill Jews? How do we kill Israelis? How do we kill those adjacent to them? So it was a way a noble experiment. But we now would owe it. It was a failure. I, let's bottom, m- yeah. Go ahead. The bottom line is, yeah, it, it failed. We failed. But look, you know, every time we, every year, we compared the situation during Christmas time. What is going on in Bethlehem, in Ramallah, in the West Bank? What's going on in Gaza? It was two different entities. I would say two different planets, Hamas, and I was there in the last night before the disengagement, walking with the division commander on the seashore. I said, if there's going to be here Singapore or Somalia. And they prefer what they preferred. And I think we did the right decision to disengage, but... We failed defending our people along the border. Right. Let's talk about the state of the war now. My understanding is that when this war began, there were 24 Hamas brigades, and at this point, 18 of them have been disestablished or defeated. Is that, is that more or less correct? 
It's correct related to the numbers, but I think it's a misperception. When, when you compare or, or look at the balance between two military forces, so this is one way to look at when you talk about regular armies. Here you, you deal with terrorist organization. Terrorist organization, it's a different ballgame. You can't count that's 50%, 60%, 70%. What is, I would say, they were hit hardly, unprecedentedly. The answer is yes. But when you look at the terrorist organization, you ask yourself, how many are left? Not how many you destroyed, because they don't need many to be harmful and Look, their battalion and the IDF battalion are not the same. It's not the same. But, all right, we defeated several battalions. But think about groups of two or three terrorists multiplied by 10 in one battalion, which is not a big force, and they can do a lot. So we have this mechanism doesn't describe the real situation. Right now, Hamas prefer to survive. So they are going underground. We look for them. But they are going underground, and from time to time, they try to bite. Try to... Uh, but the numbers really don't tell the whole story. So we have to deal with those. And, and, and yeah, Monty, tell me how you see the the, the 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 war unfolding and the performance of the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, and of uh, and, and of Hamas. I'd mentioned that Ed Lutvak, who's a strategist, you know him. He's not always right, but he's always interesting. He he believes that approximately ten thousand Hamas fighters have been killed or terminally disabled, along with an equal number of wounded who may not be able to fight any time soon. Uh, that's interesting because if 20,000 people have been killed and 10,000 are Hamas fighters. That's an extraordinarily good ratio of civilians to uh, to combatants. Uh, but give us your thoughts on that, Monty. Well, first, thanks. Um, you know, I, I agree with the assessment of the Hamas troops. I look at it like I, I imagine there's a lot of different ways you can assess success, but I think there's three broad lines of a line of objectives. One was to defeat the ability of Hamas to aggregate forces, and they still working at 10,000 out of, it's really hard to predict how, you know, Hamas, I'm sure could have 24,000 troops on a good day or 20,000 troops, on a, you know, on, a, on an easy day, 20,000, the minute 250 pound bombs are hitting, you know, they could very quickly have 15,000 and 5,000, you know, lucky lose go home. But, you know, I think they're two thirds of the way towards taking care of the troops, but they're much harder to get at now because as Ben uh, 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 said, they're not probably aggregating in a military formation, in a military recognizable way. The second issue is the leadership, you know, and they're taking them down one by one. And that has to happen. Part of that leadership is making sure they can't reorganize forces. Those are the primary ones I'd go after. Some of the ones who have responsibility and culpability for what happened on October 7th, you know, I wouldn't take as long as I took after Munich to, you know, to get things rectified, but I would get them. I, I wouldn't put that as my number one thing. I'd get the people who you think can, consolidate forces under their command and move them and hurt Israel. And then the third thing is the infrastructure. And they're in these tunnel systems. They're disabling them. But, you know, it, it you know, that's going to take time to fully do. But those three things have to happen. 
Um, look, is it going the way Israel would have predicted, you know, planned it? No. They also didn't start the war. I mean, one of the things, you know, when you do a war of choice, you kind of own every crappy decision that goes into it. Every weapon you didn't have, every force that wasn't at 100% readiness and does poorly and, you know, makes a mistake in the battlefield, you own it in a war of choice. In an existential threat to your country, where someone pulls you into a war which you cannot avoid, they own, you know, culpability and responsibility for the things you didn't get right at the very beginning. Now, there's a point where that transitions and, and the IDF is responsible, but I don't even think we're there yet. And we're four months into this, but at some point they are. I'd say one other thing about exit strategies, you know, shame on the U.S. for not having a good exit strategy in 2003 and 2021, you know, in, in Iraq as we went in, you know, and in, in Afghanistan. Again, we in both cases, you know, um, we had time to think about and get that pick of the Iraq case to get that right. Uh, I have a little I have a little more empathy for not having a a day after plan the day before a war you didn't know was going to start started. Right. So, again, people have to. But that I know that's not how the most of the media look at this. Uh, they look at the IDF as an all powerful force that always has the answer to every question. And they don't. And, and I think, you know, uh, you know we, but there'll be a point where even people like me who tend to see the, the best in everything in the IDF are going to say, you kind of own this problem now. And, you know, we're, we're getting there in, in the in, in Gaza, but I don't think we're there quite yet. Yeah, Amir, Mark mentions the leadership of, of, of Hamas. Of course, there are leaders in uh, in Doha. They're living in luxury. There are leaders in uh, Ankara, Turkey, they're living well. We believe that the military leaders in Gaza are in particular Yahya uh, Sinwar Sinwar and Mohammed Dave. And I think most people believe they are somewhere in the tunnels under Rafa or perhaps Khan Yunus in in that area. Is that correct from what you understand? And is it how vital is it that, that, that they be taken out? In the in the next round, I, from what I understand, Khan Yunus, the fighting there is almost over. The fighting in uh, in Rafa needs to begin, and of course, the U.S. Is, is is sort of trying to pull on the reins a little bit. We can talk about that too. Well, um, knocking down the leadership is, is important, and and I want to distinguish between the leaders in Gaza itself and the leaders that live in luxury in Doha and other places. The ones who dictate what's going on and take the decisions are the ones in Gaza. And you think, he, by the way, he, that that Sinwar has good communications with with his troops on, uh, above the ground. Well, look, terrorist organization is not so centralized like a regular military. It's dispersed. It's got the local leadership, and I think that they uh, first. Their first priority right now is to survive, not the leaders. Of course, the leaders, but but the uh, terrorists to survive. And they got comments, not it's kind of a local comment, under the basic understanding of what the commanders want. So they are functioning, but not in their full capacity, far away from that. It's important strategically to knock down the top leadership 
Sinwar and Def. And we are not successful up in now because they built a huge infrastructure that will protect them. I hope that we'll be able to be, we'll be successful getting them, corner them, and, and find them. It's important. That, I would say, it's not a guarantee that the others will stop fighting. I don't think so. Because one thing is not in shortage in Gaza Strip, is human resources. So it's not easy to replace a capable man like Sinwar. But others, lower ranks, give them AK-47, RPG, and they will do. One thing you want to happen is that they eventually run out of at least ammunition. Now, they, we believe, again, I think, that the ammunition has been, I mean, the, the arsenal is amazing how much, they, with the, the volume of weaponry, rockets, that the material that Hamas got. We think, I, I, I believe, that most of it came over the Egyptian border, not over, not through the Israeli crossings, either under the border or over the border through tunnels. Are they still getting, do, you, do we know whether they're still getting resupplied? Because that border, the Philadelphia corridor, uh, that has not yet been taken by the Israelis. And the Israelis are having, as I understand it, some difficult conversations with the Egyptians, both over the fact that the Egyptians didn't police their border and allowed this to happen, and over whether or not the Israelis are going to have to take control of that border in order to, because if the weapons are still coming in, that's very useful for Hamas. You're absolutely right. We have to interdict those uh, arms transfers. The source is Iran. Yes. It goes through Egypt, used to go through Sudan, etc. There's a 14 kilom kilometers, eight miles that we have to block. It's doable. Here, it's a bit sensitive because of the relationship with the Egyptians. Uh, our clear demand is to block the border. They were very successful in the past. They flooded the tunnels. They did a lot of things, even cooperate with us to do that. But I think that uh, right now the situation should be fixed. We cannot continue with an open border that a lot of ammunition, weapons, whatever, has been transferred through. Uh, there are two options. One is an effort that will be led by the U.S. with Egypt and Israel to block the border in the Egyptian side and in the Palestinian side. That can be done. I think, I think it's the most preferable option. The second option of that the IDF will deploy to the Philadelphia corridor. It's along the border. But here, we will have to stay there. Maybe years. So maybe we won't have any choice, but we need to, to urge the uh, Egyptians to block the border. And it's I don't think it's too complicated. They corrupted uh, security forces. He was to collect money for, for all of that, and that should be stopped. Mark, Rafa is likely to be a fairly big battle, we, we, we think. 
Have you been hearing the administration change its tone early on? Listen, Hamas has to be defeated. Hamas has to be destroyed. The Israelis can't just mow the lawn and let it grow back this time around. But then you have President Biden last week saying that the conduct of the response in Gaza has been over the top, which I think is is frankly a slander and un, and quite untrue if you listen to military experts like John Spencer of the Urban Warfare Institute and, and uh, others. Um, no military, frankly, frankly, no military in history has done as much to try to spare civilians, despite the fact that Hamas uses civilians and openly does so as human shields. But Biden's rhetoric sounds to me rather sharper to you. Yes, sir. Well, the rhetoric sounds sharper. We'll have to see what the action is. You know, they're continuing. I mean, you know, I promise you that, you know, from the time we record this till two days from now when we post it, you know, three C-17s will land in, uh, in Israel with, with U.S. equipment and spares and munitions and things like that. I think we're still continuing to provide a significant amount of support uh, to Israel. I don't think that's stopping. Look, the president's got a tough political problem in Michigan and a few other states where he's got to sound tougher than he is. And he sends cabinet members up there to speak a different voice than you hear in Washington. And then once in a while, he says something that can be you know, attributed to him as cracking down. But I think the reality is that we're, we're in this, you know, the United States pushed its cards into the, you know, its poker chips in the middle of the table on October 8th. And, you know, I think this is a, the, you know, whether Biden wants to be on this pony or not, you know, we're riding it to the end. So, you know, from my perspective, they're going to continue to get the, the support. Now, they, do, they need to get the support. Um, a lot of what we hear uh, in the media is a very distorted view of how targeting is done and how target selection processes happen and, and things like that. I mean, I, uh, David Adesnik, our, you know, one of our senior fellows and, and myself are writing an article on this very issue of, of, you know, calling out an expert, you know, who deployed weapons off of uh, drones, you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan 15 years ago, you know, to, who, who then, you know, tells the New York Times that this is the most, uh, you, know, you know, catastrophic use of weaponry he or she's ever seen. And their description of what the damaged weapons do, you know, we've planned, we have in, intentionally executed 2,000 pound strikes within, you know, Unfortunately, well, sometimes 50 meters, but normally, you know, 400 feet of U.S. forces on purpose when necessary. So, you know, their description of the damaging effect that 2,000 pound weapons have shows they have no idea of how, how um, uh, you know, weapon entry uh, angle, speed, uh, what type of fusing you're using, what type of delays on the fusing, what type of ordnance in the warhead. These are all things that experts review. Make a decision. If they make mistakes and mistakes happen, they're reviewed so that there's a better process the next time. This kind of target execution process is what the United States does. I've seen the IDF do it. It's very similar. And, you know, it, it, the idea that this is some kind of some kind of unique, you know, urban warfare never before seen, uh, you know, in terms of, a, a, you, know, an, a, you know, an intent to get civilians is ridiculous. If you want to see an intent to get civilians, I would take you to Mariupol a year, 18 months ago. Watch that strike thing. And you and we'll look at that and then look at 
at what the Israelis have had to do. And, and there is a stark contrast, but the contrast, you know, reflects very well on the idea. And, and to be fair, President Biden hasn't said that the Israelis shouldn't do battle with Hamas in Rafah. What he said is they should have a plan for the civilians. And my understanding is that that plan is evolving. It has to do with very with specific areas where there will be sort of tense cities and people will be out of the way of the battle and 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 that that that, that this is this process is underway. Am I correct on that? You're correct. Uh the IDF has several plans um to address the challenge in Rafah. The major challenge there is more than one million people that have to be moved to another area. It's doable. It will take time. This is not instantly. It will take time. Um, the, Israeli, uh, the IDF should be very cautious. First, not to hit those guys. They're, they are living in tents. They are quite vulnerable. That's why we want to move them for their safety. The second challenge, challenge is, is the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. It's very close proximity. So we also need to coordinate with them in order not to hit them by mistake. Um, so that can be done. It will take time. I want to put another challenge which is the Ramadan is coming. Uh, exactly. I was going to ask that next. Um, and, and, but let me just make one point before that, and that is, and I'll say this, you may not want to, what the Egyptians should be saying is, let's, let us help get civilians out of the way. We have the Sinai Desert, lots of room there. They can come there until the battles are over and then return. We want to be helpful. We understand there are people who need to get out of the way of the war. And the Egyptians are saying, no way, not one refugee. We don't want, they're not coming on the Sinai. We're not taking them. It's your problem, not ours. I just want to call the Egyptians out for that. You don't have to say anything. I can, Mark, you can, if you want yeah. to. Can I have two, two thoughts? One, you know, don't hold your breath on that, on that uh, <laughs> offer for the Sinai. Um, despite the fact that we give $1.3 billion a year per yeah. decade, to the Egyptians, who thanked us recently by trying to transfer weapons back to Russia to use against Ukraine. I'll just leave all that aside, all the baggage of Egypt aside, and say, Cliff, don't hold your breath. I, you know, I'd like to keep you as a friend. Um, <laughs> you know, the other thing I want to say, going back on on IDF operations, is is you know when this when this conflict's over, this part of it, they'll do forensics as they always do, and we're going to get story. We're going to understand that a measurable percentage of IDF ground troops were killed while trying to execute a rule of engagement. In other words, they didn't do something that could have made much less risk or consequence of risk because there was a concern for civilian casualties um, or unintended consequences. And there are going to be, you know, a, a, a measurable list of dead soldiers who did, who were died because there was a constrictive ROE, which is unfortunately is something you expect from a democracy. Or fortunately, you know, it's what you expect and it's going to happen. I'm going to tell you right now, the Russians operating in Ukraine don't have that list. There is not a rules of engagement where we don't strike this, we don't strike that. What about, I think I heard someone's voice and there's none of that. And, uh, and you know, so I just think there's, you know, 
again, amongst all this criticism, I think there needs people really need to wait for the forensics to come out. Then you can have, if Israel made mistakes, they'll acknowledge them. Maybe they will fail to acknowledge a couple and they can be caught out on it. But the reality is, it's nothing compared to the kind of drubbing they're getting in the press. And the reason I bring this up is, that's why President Biden has to kind of hedge his comment. Is this perception that, that, that the United States is accountable or responsible for, you know, unconstrained warfare against civilians, none of which is true. But, you know, the misperception or mischaracterization of that is a daily fact in, in a lot of our media in the States. So come back to the timing. Uh, I mean, as you said, Ramadan's coming up. It starts on March 10th. That's less than a month away from when we're recording this. It lasts until April 9th. Um, does nothing happen before that? Does it wait till? And by the way, I should, we, we, why is Ramadan a problem? I mean, it's not like Hamas says, "Oh, it's Ramadan; it's a holiday. We don't attack Israelis during Ramadan. They're happy to attack Israelis during Ramadan, right?" We we went through this years ago with the Taliban, where people thought, "Oh, the Taliban won't fight us during Ramadan. It's their it's their whole it's it's a holiday." Anyhow, talk about the complications of Ramadan and what that means coming up and Israeli calculations. It's a very, it's a holy, very holy, holy day, and the spirit is different. And I would say, from our experience in the past, always Ramadan was a challenge. Organizations, individuals that they feel, you know, spiritually motivated, it is, and it will be a challenge. And now this Ramadan will be during wartime. That's new. This is not like the Olympic Games in Greece or the old Greece that they stopped fighting. No. But spiritually, they are in a different mindset. Different mindset. They fast. They are closer to God, whatever. So it's a sensitive time. Now, put an, another layer, which is during wartime. And, and, and right now in Gaza, after several months, you know the situation there is, is, is quite challenging for them. So this is, might be kind of a greenhouse that might ignite not just Gaza, Probably the Gazans are under severe conditions because of the war. My concern, first, is the West Bank. That's about right. West Bank, that can spill over inside Israel. That can ignite Muslim around the countries that surround us. And of course, it might have a global impact in countries that, because people identify themselves with the holiday, where they slam, and against Israel, and yeah, and the West Bank is not a peaceful place right right now. Hasn't been for a long time. Hamas is there as well. Palestinian Islamic Jihad as well. During Ramadan, people go to uh, Al Aqsa Mosque. Israelis permit that. I've been in Jerusalem during Ramadan, but sometimes people go up there and take rocks or weapons and throw them at Jews praying at the wall, which is just beneath. Then the Israeli security forces try to stop them. 
riots break out. What the, the accusation is, ah, the Israelis are trying to desecrate Al-Aqsa and the dome of the mosque. Yeah. That's how it can. And th- there are those provocateurs who will want it to spit out. Spit out, spit out control. You are right. This is because it's a solid ground for those kind of phenomena. Don't forget, even though it's minority, there are Israelis that take the advantage of this holiday in order to fuel the flames. Mm. And so we have to deal with those two. These are not big numbers, but sometimes even a single event can initiate an antifada uprising. So right now it's so delicate, so we need to come down almost everybody from both sides. And I don't compare, it's not the same numbers, but it is it's flammable. Okay, well, the other volatile area is the north of Israel. Um, Hezbollah has been, I, I say, a, a small-scale conflict with Israel since the beginning of, of, of this war with Gaza. They, they, it would appear that Hezbollah doesn't want an all-out war, but it can't be seen as simply sitting it out. Israelis have been killed. A lot more Hezbollah uh, combatants have been killed. No question about that. Um, uh, but there are, what, 100,000 is, is, Israelis who have left their homes in the north in cities like Matula Less. left, and they're not no, going to come back until they feel safe. Now, the Israelis are saying, hey, we thought we had this settled back when we left Lebanon. Lebanon. The UN Security Council passed a resolution, 1701, said Hezbollah would move back north of the uh, Latani River, um, and UNIFIL, a UNIF, UN force would would make sure that's the true. The Lebanese armed forces would make sure it's true. Never happened. Instead, there are at least 150,000 missiles and quite a few Hezbollah commandos who are also in that area that could spill into Israel. That The Israelis can tolerate that, it seems to me, only for so long. Look, lesson learned from uh, October 7th, we cannot live with that kind of threat, uh, and, and trying to contain and despite of the potential threat. We cannot. We have to change our national security strategy dealing with that because we, we did, uh, or actually we have behaved differently along the years. We cannot live with that kind of threat. It, in magnitude, it's Hezbollah's threat is, is, is at least one magnitude, maybe two magnitudes in comparison to Hamas. So that is a major challenge. What I want to say is, is that can be done in one day. You're absolutely right, Cliff, when you said 1701 never, never, ever implemented fully, fully implemented by, by Hezbollah. So right now, we have to give a chance to a political effort to roll back mainly the commando forces, Raduan forces, at least 10 kilometers from the border. This is kind of a temporary temporary uh, um, solution. It should not be a permanent. We need to change the mandate of UNIFIL they don't do their job. Not. 
and and I don't have a high expectations. But think about this kind of a package, and of course we have to change some of the unified forces. These are countries that are not willing to do anything. So this should be the first step. Later on, pressure on Lebanon, on Hezbollah, it will take years. But the other option uh, that Israel will come to a point is, uh, no, it's unacceptable, and we will have to fight. Monty, how do you see the challenge on the northern border and the threat on the northern border? Well, I, I agree with General Ashwell. First, what I'll say is that, you know, I'm sitting here in Rwanda, very hard to think back to, you know, a UN force doing the right thing and, and, <laughs> and oh. expecting that to happen, right? So uh, probably the performance might be forward. The, so the genocide. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And probably in my, I think I visited Israel 15 times as J5 at UCOM and the, um, you know, we would go up to that border every other time. And I remember one time we went, when a lieutenant colonel in the IDF had just been killed by uh, a, 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 a sniper, um, you know, right, basically operating within the UNIFIL forces. I mean, it wasn't a UNIFIL soldier, but, you know, uh, unprotected. So, you know, just to give people context, the Latani probably exists 20 to 30 kilometers north, depending where you are on the border. The forces, Hezbollah needs to be moved north of that. That won't stop rockets from hitting, you know, if there are longer range rockets from hitting Tel Aviv or Haifa or whatever. But what it does is, is it ends the immediate, it allows the farmers and 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 um, kibbutz members and others to move back in, 100,000 people back into their housing. Just like clearing out Hamas from Gaza allows several hundred thousand people to move back to those. To me, that's the kind of final step of any IDF operation is the safe return of Israeli citizenry to their normal abodes in the north and the south. And so, unfortunately, when people say, well, there's now, there could be a new front in the north. No, there's a front, there's impacts from the front in the north already. And and I get it that the, the killing range is a five kilometers every side of the board for the most, every five kilometers every, each side of the border for the most part. But you have to get there, the thing where, they have hundreds of thousands, you know, when, when we say they have 100,000, 150,000 rockets and mortars, a lot of them are taken out of play by being 18 to, you know, 20, 30 kilometers north of the border. You take, you take Now you get down to something that's a much more meaningful and manageable thing for the IDF to sort out and protect the citizenry and, and have them back in their houses and their schools and their hospitals and their other facilities. So to me, that has to be resolved. And, you know, I do think we should give Unifil the first bite at the apple only because, you know, th- you know, this is their, you know, their last best chance. Because at this point, if they don't, if they can't get them to move, then they really ought to clear out of the way so they're not collateral damage to what's going to happen afterward. What about the Lebanese armed forces, which are ineffective at best and uh, auxiliary of Hezbollah at worst? We, the U.S., have been giving support to the LAF, the Lebanese Armed Forces, for years. Monty, should we still be doing that? It's funny. When I was at UCOM, we were responsible for Israel. Central Command was responsible for Lebanon. And all I would hear from the Central Command generals was, you don't understand how, how good the lab, you know, how valuable the lab could be. You're missing this point. I used to sit there with one of General Eshel's deputies, uh, Asaf Orion, and we get these earfuls of, of you know, you don't get it. I, I would love to be talking with Central Command now and say, well, now that both these countries are in your 
AOR. Um, how do you feel? And they, I think their answer would be, you know, this this laugh is a is a vulner is a risk and a vulnerability, and you know, not so much. So, you know, my take: we did train them. You know, we also trained nine battalions of West Bank police. You know, through Jordan. And, you know, these are efforts. These are things you do, you know, at the end of a conflict when you think, how am I going to make things not happen this way again? I would say that was an idea we had in 2006. You know, like General Eshel said, Singapore, Somalia, you pick. You know, the laugh is mm. to make it made a choice. They had two different options as well. Be a professional force that, you know, helps separate things or be complicit in a lot of actions. And I, I think initially... They could have gone either way, but that I think at this point, we now know they're fairly heavily compromised, and they're certainly not going to insert themselves into a problem in a, in a helpful way. I want to add. I want to add to that. I, I think not many people know that great portion of laugh are Shiites, and it's, it's sometimes it sounds like a kind of an extension of Hezbollah. Yeah. 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 All right, last subject I want to deal with today um, is the uh, the 300-pound gorilla in the room, but it's hiding behind the couch rather cleverly. And that's the Islamic Republic of Iran, which while we're talking about Gaza and Rafah and tunnels and the north of Israel, they're moving ahead with developing the capability to produce nuclear weapons. We I don't know at least how quickly, but it, that, it, that would be a game-changer in the Middle East and in the world, because right now, and this is behind the big gorilla, is the fact that Iran now has a an alliance, part of an axis, with Russia, uh, with China, uh, with North Korea. By the way, the North Korean, and there are credible theories that North Korean engineers helped build these tunnels. It was, there was, these, were, this, these were an engineering feat of some of, of, of a rather impressive one. Um, what should we be thinking about? And, and is the Biden administration, Monty, thinking at all at this point about doing anything except striking some kind of deal and say, hey, we, we won. They're not moving uh, as fast towards the nuclear capability as they might be. Well, first, I, I think you're right. And I, I think Iran is, I don't want to say the puppet master, but they're certainly yeah. the control agent. And, and you know, and one good th one thing that makes me Quite not optimistic, but less pessimistic is that on October 8th, they could have told Nasrallah it's go time. They didn't. And that's because I think Nasrallah and Hezbollah are their gold chip. And they weren't ready to sacrifice them at that moment. And, and, and they would have been sacrificed. Look, I'd, I wouldn't want to be an IDF pilot. You know, you know, I think there'd be a lot of risk going on, doing two fronts at once, lots of things that would have been very demanding. Uh, on the other hand, the IDF has strong enough a reputation to get its Air Force that, that I think Iran said we're not going to risk Hezbollah and Nasrallah on this at this time. And I think part of that is the U.S. response was very strong. October seventh didn't go, even if they gave the go order, which I'm not going to say for sure. I know that I, I'm pretty sure it went differently than the Iranians thought it would. I mean, it was a much more you know had elements of a pogrom to it than than some kind of like singular terrorist act. And I just think they understood that they had, they're on the wrong side of a lot of international public opinion very rapidly. So they didn't, Nasrallah's held back. So that was their time. I'm going to tell you right now, the IDF every day is in a better position to take care of, of Lebanon. Now, look, it's still not, and I think 
I'd be interested in General Ashel's opinion on this. I still think there's a lot of risk to Israeli civilians in this uh, in a Lebanon war that shouldn't be underplayed when we were just when we were so rightfully concerned about 1,200 casualties four months ago. Uh, but I will tell you, the IDF is more ready every day, and they've passed that critical point where can they do it with you know can they look at the you know war cabinet and say this is executable? I'm confident they could. So. That could happen. Now, Iran, I just want to say one last thing on Iran. They are behind that couch. I will tell you, we are not ready to deal with Iran and the U.S. military. We have not made the right movements. We have not positioned ourselves properly. I, I knew, you know, when the strikes were happening between February 1st and 4th, there was zero chance we are going to hit anything in Iran or which Iran could consider like homeland. And that was because we have 25 to 30 outposts spread throughout Jordan, um, Syria, and Iraq. And we have the patriots to defend five or six of them from, from Iranian ballistic missiles. Now, those proxies don't have these kind of ballistic missiles with their certain attack apertures and angles. But the Iranians have lots of them, lots and lots of them. And, the, you know, we, we have several thousand troops at those outposts that would have been at serious risk. And if, if we were mad about three casualties, three KS, and we should be, there were tragic losses. We would have been really mad about the response on that. And I think it could have escalated really rapidly. Um, so I, we're just not in a position right now. We have to reorganize our forces, decide what the number one mission is. The number one mission won't be Iraq government stability. If we decide to attack Iran, the number one mission will be destroying the Iranian nuclear program and all its facets, right? And when you do that, you have to move things, do things. There's things that I could tell or General Escher could tell are happening that would cause us to go, uh-oh, you know, we're moving towards that. But we're not anywhere near that right now, Cliff. We are way, we are absolutely in the wrong posture. And, and that, well, if I'm Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei and I'm talking to my closest advisors and I say, look, I'm thinking, while I have time, I want to break out with nuclear weapons. I want to, I want that capability. Um, my advisors, you tell me. How dangerous is it for me to do that? Is there any, is or is it as, as Khomeini, the founder of the revolution, said, a situation where the Americans can't do a damn thing? I'm quoting him fairly directly. Which, what would they tell him? Well, let me. I'll pick up. Only <laughs> one of us on this call has you know, removed another country's nuclear power capabilities. So I'll just say, <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll say that. Uh, there's a different, you know, the United States and and Iran independent. I mean, excuse me, the United States and Israel independently have capability. And so, you know, if if that kind of order is given, one one of the two, you know, Israel will be much will be quickly to the point where they have to do something. Now, look, we can get there quickly. I'm not saying, you know, mm -hmm. the army moves fast. You know, you have a son who's a, a captain. You know that when told to move, especially move to save your butt from getting hit with something. The army moves exceptionally fast, right? And they can get ourselves in a defensive posture while Israel or Israel and the United States together take care of this. So I look, I don't think that's an issue. I, I think what I'm saying is we were not going to start an escalatory move that included you know, strikes in Iran, not at the nuclear power, uh, nuclear force generation capability um, without repositioning our forces. All right. Let's... Let me close on that, except to ask General and Admiral, are there final points about the current 
war in Gaza, about the, the more extended war with uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and its various proxies and foreign legions that you want to make before we get off this, uh, before we end this conversation, General? Well, Iran cannot skip any kind of uh, special treatment because Iran is behind everything and everyone. And if Iran won't be addressed in the right way, its self-confidence will rise up. They will uh, dare to do more. And I don't exclude the uh, nuclear program. And the nuclear program, if, if they will reach nuclear weapon, it means total immunity for the Iranian regime. And that's bad for the world, not just for Israel. Uh, Monty, final thoughts out of Africa? So first, I agree completely with, with what General Eshel said. Um, I, I think it, it, it's important for you and I, Cliff, to make a, a push. Uh, look, we both want the $60 billion for Ukraine, which is $40 billion of war fighting gear, $20 billion of other. But in that $97 billion is you know, 14 point something, 14.4 billion of military assistance for Israel that needs to happen. It needs to happen now because a lot of this is critical. A lot of this is about Lebanon and about the long-term stability of the IDF. Um, only about 4 billion of that 14 point something billion is like supplies and logistics right now that could be useful in, in a, in a uh, Gaza scenario. Uh, and some of it's paying back the U.S. military for stuff they've already sent out. Um, but there's money in there for Iron Dome, Iron Beam, David Sling, and and restockpiling the uh, the Israeli Air Force. That has to happen. And this stuff, you know, this crap inside the Republican side of the House has to stop. We have to get this money to them. And look, I, I think it's right to do Ukraine. I think it's right to support Taiwan. Uh, I think it's right to build our defense industrial base, which are the three other elements of this big package. But it needs to get done now. Um, we need to be building the second David, uh, the second um, Iron Dome factory that we should have been building it two years ago. That was a problem between U.S. and Israel. We're slow on these kind of things. Lost opportunity. But that plant needs to be getting built. I think it's in Arkansas. Tom Cotton needs to be working hard to get that done now uh, so that so that it's cranking out we- you know, weaponry 18 months from now. And you can put the other factory into max production over the next 18 months. These are things that have to happen. This is how militaries plan. And you need to get this. Uh, so big push, get that done in the next two to three weeks. I'm with you. We, we need that. We need that for our allies who are fighting common enemies. We need that for ourselves. We need a, to reinvigorate and rejuvenate our defense industrial base, which we allowed to just to, to, to slow down terribly. All that. And I know you're working on that. I know we are. General Eschel, thank you very much for being with us today. Monty, Admiral Montgomery, uh, safe travels. Careful what you eat and drink over there in Africa. I've uh, spent a lot of time in Africa. It can be, there's some wonderful cuisine, but be careful with the salads as well. <laughs> and thanks to all of you for being with us as well here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. 
Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.